Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today, we are joined by Northwestern University organic chemistry professor, Mark Eparisi. And uh, Mark and I actually met back in 2008, I want to say, at DePaul University. We were resident advisors together. We were on the same staff and uh, so enjoyable this this moment that we shared. We were right on Lake Michigan and uh, he just moved back from Boston where he's been studying and teaching and living. And uh, now he's back in the city of Chicago. And, uh, you know, we just, I've been trying to get him on actually for like two years. So it's, it's great to have him on. We talked about, you know, the application of organic chemistry in the world, uh, material science, quantum mechanics, water scarcity, and the impact of climate change on human movement. Again, this was just like so enriching as an experience. We, you know, it's just on a Wednesday afternoon at like one thirty, and it's summer, Chicago, and we're just like hanging out feet away from the water. Follow Mark on Instagram at Thirst Traps and Churches. <laughs> oh, I love Mark. This is such a fun episode, and he's, he's such a great teacher and uh, an avid learner as well. So, without further ado, let's begin. I'm here with Mark Aparisi, and we are sitting feet away from Lake Michigan. Uh, It's too bad the audience can't see what we're seeing yeah it's really beautiful i was just telling rich we should have brought like beach chairs to have our backs against the uh lake michigan but that's that's the next uh investment for the podcast for sure it's just like getting beach chairs so we can just be on lake michigan just record all the time uh so we're it's a beautiful summer day yeah it's gorgeous out here you just moved back from Boston. I've been trying to get Mark on for quite a, <laughs> quite a while. This has been like a year and a half. Year and maybe. a half, two years. Yeah. Um, Rich and <laughs> I actually know, go way, way back. back. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were RAs at DePaul University. We were in um, Monroe Belden. Yeah. I Shout out MUB. MUB. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is like 08, 09. Something there. like that. Yeah. 08 yeah. to 2010, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, we're back here. Yeah. On Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're a chemistry professor. Yes. And that's what brought you back. You're teaching at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. You were at Northeastern University. That's in right. Boston. That's right. Yeah. I, um, I moved seven years ago from Chicago uh, to Boston to get my PhD at Boston College and then two years at Northeastern. And then Chicago called me home. And now I'm back. So uh, before I want to talk Boston, I want to talk chemistry and science and also just, you know, you in general. But before this, I did look at your rate my professor. (laughs) For (laughs) which one? For Northeastern University. Okay. So so I don't know. I don't know if it's a big deal for professors or not, what they're rated or whatever. But you have a five out of five. I sure do. Out of 20 ratings, you have... 17 fives, two fours, and a and one one, one. one. yes, and one awful, one awful ra- rating, which but is the, you know uh, pretty good. The uh, <laughs> the tags that you have are uh, gives good feedback, caring. Uh, we also have in there test heavy. You're you're very test heavy. I think it just that just comes with the subject with yeah. organic chemistry. There's not many essays that you write in those sorts of classes the world of chemistry yes <laughs> uh, that, uh there were two other things on there do you know them do you check it every day not every day not maybe every like day. once a week <laughs> just I was, to see if there's anything new i was looking for the <laughs> the red chili pepper they discontinued that oh really yeah they discontinued that um i believe like five or ten years ago it was it was an equity thing because you don't want to necessarily have like professors being rated by their looks which you know that makes sense yeah (laughs) i'm all for it Uh, i believe when i was teaching at loyola 
right before I uh, I, I moved to Boston, I had a, f- a couple of chili peppers, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm sad Hell to yeah. see them go. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. So you have a different then profile for each college. Yes. Yes. So you're starting over at Northwestern. Yes, sir. And you got to build up. Get, build up my rate, my professor. It's <laughs> honestly the only people who go on rate my professor are the ones who either really love the professor and and, and or the class or hate the professor and or the class. Um, There are official avenues through universities where students can actually give feedback, more detailed, more um, metrics, and those are usually more reliable. But I'm happy to report that my official (laughs) reviews have been pretty good too. Pretty positive. Yeah. Pretty positive. Yeah. All right. So you're in Boston. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Boston and your time in Boston. Because we're like Chicago cats. Yes. And now you're in East Coast territory. Yeah, exactly. Um, Boston was a nice place. Um, it, it was hard to move away from Chicago. Okay. Um, this is my home. This is where all my like friends are. Most of my family's here. Mm-hmm. But um, part of me uh, felt like I needed to go away, at least for a little bit. I think the goal was to yeah. eventually move back. But um, Boston was uh, an interesting town. It's much smaller than Chicago, but there's a lot of history there. Um, yeah. A lot of amazing green spaces, just like Chicago. Uh, an okay yeah. transit system. But um, yeah, I, I basically spent um, five years at uh, Boston College, like I said, which is not in Boston. And it's not a college. <laughs> it's actually technically in Chestnut Hill in Newton, which is a suburb, and it's a university. So lies okay. all outright. But um, yeah, I spent five years there. Um, working in an organic chemistry research lab, you know, published three papers, did a lot of teaching there too, which is um, something that I'm much more focused on. Uh, obviously, I, I actually don't have a um, research program at Northwestern. Oh, yeah. I'm just, uh, I shouldn't say just, but it's uh, my official title is Assistant Professor of Instruction. So no tenure, no research lab to speak of. So all I do is focus on the curriculum and, and teaching the big classes that research professors don't want to do. But, um, but yeah, uh, uh, BC was very good to me. Boston has been very good to me. Um, I grew a lot. I think I grew up a lot, discovered a lot about myself. Yeah. I discovered, um, one, I don't want to do research. Explain to me, there's a couple things on my mind. What's the difference between a college and a university? A university is more research focused. It's also typically bigger than a college. Um, So when when I think of the word college versus university, colleges are usually smaller, more undergraduate focused than having master's or doctoral programs. Okay. Mm -hmm. Universities are the research. Yes. Okay. So then... uh, Go uh, elaborate on Boston College and then teaching and where you're at now. Sure. Um, Yeah, so at at Boston College, got my uh, doctorate, five years spent in the lab doing organic chemistry research. Um, I also got the opportunity to be a teaching assistant for a a few classes. And I I really missed that about uh, being in graduate school because when you're get a PhD in a science, you're not taking classes and ideally you're not teaching because you want to focus on your research, get your research done, publish and get out. Uh, But I knew that I really wanted to teach. That's like my heart and soul. I love doing it. I I love communicating science. I love um, telling my students fun facts about the things that they're learning that's applicable to real that world. That was another thing on your, uh, right, my professor was like, uh, uh, something about teaching or, or lectures, mm-hmm. great lectures. That's great lectures. I don't know what it is. I, um, I've been told I have a knack for just delivering things in a quote unquote, very clear, direct, no-nonsense kind of way okay um which i'm not quite sure um what i mean i guess a lot of students have been giving me good feedback about that but i don't know i just sort of do it you just, you just got it <laughs> i just got it, just got it yeah yeah 
Okay. Elaborate more on... Because uh, I have a friend, Dr. Dave, who teaches history at UIC. And there seems to be this kind of... Um, not tug of war, but uh, that's not probably the right phrase. But there's like teaching and then there's research. Mm-hmm. And some people don't like doing one or the other it seems like you're leaning more towards teaching and being with students and being able for them to like understand the material and curriculum Mm -hmm. uh yeah what's what's your perspective on kind of the research versus teaching so what i have been doing at northeastern and what i hope to do at northwestern is to buzz market some of my colleagues research what, what is that word? Buzz oh, market? buzz market. Um, I, I learned that from another podcast, Judge, <laughs> Judge John Hodgman podcast, okay. um, where he basically will just drop in like a product, like, oh, we're, we're buzz marketing Brooklyn and Sheets or, you know, okay, some coffee company. But uh, I guess in the context of uh, university research, I like to like give a plug to okay. uh, one of my colleagues' research uh, programs, which ideally would have um, a lot of overlap with what they're learning in okay. the lecture. So it's like this uh, collaborative effort between research and teaching, right? Teachers are taking kind of ideas from the research that's happening and then something like that? In the traditional organic chemistry curriculum, it's probably more the other way around where we basically teach the sophomores the basics of organic chemistry and then once you get into their research lab then you learn oh a lot of the things we taught you we that was actually from things, things from 20 years ago maybe 50 years ago here's more modern techniques that you learn in a research lab even though all the stuff that you do in a, in a research lab will still be undergraded by very few rules and fundamentals in chemistry and I think that's one thing, going back to the great lectures quote that people have been giving me on right, my professor is, um, I, I will often repeat certain keywords and just say, just emphasize how common a lot of organic chemistry processes are. Like okay. if you learn something from chapter six, it's gonna be the same from chapter 12 and chapter 14. Like it's all, fundamentally the same even though it has different clothes if you know what I mean okay kind of hard to explain to a lay audience (laughs) well let's try let's uh, we've been talking about universities and research and stuff Mm -hmm. what is organic chemistry so the the textbook definition of organic chemistry would be it's the chemistry of carbon containing compounds and Carbon has very special properties that gives it a lot of versatility, which is why carbon is the backbone of all living things. But in the first lecture, when I talk about what is this class, what is this subject, I, I say carbon is just the backbone. It's more of the things that decorate the carbon backbone. So other atoms are actually just as if not uh, complementary to what carbon can do, like oxygen atoms, carbon, uh, um, nitrogen atoms, chlorine atoms, those actually give organic compounds their uh, be uh, their properties, their behavior. And carbon itself, if, if it was just like a straight chain of carbons, those don't really do much. It's the stuff that decorates the carbon that that gives it its properties. So the carbon itself is very essential, but it's not necessarily what makes things special, right? It's everything else that kind of adds to the carbon? Yeah, yeah, okay. I'd say so. Mm-hmm. This is wild. I remember in, in college, you just have like, you know, <laughs> you have your notebooks open and I see what's in there and you have all these, I don't know if they're doodles or whatever. They're doodles. Of like all these different <laughs> compounds and uh, chains of... of periodic element I tell my family and friends a lot that I I got a PhD in polygons and zigzags because you just draw hexagons and zigzags a lot but but those all represent um, organic compounds see to me that was like uh, 
what those drawings were mm-hmm. and what they they looked like it looked more foreign to me as like a language than like any language i've seen on sure. earth like written like to me that was so foreign and like i was someone um really until recently i was supposed like i wasn't really into science mm-hmm. i wouldn't say intimidated by it but it was just like it didn't suit my personality or like i'm not sure. someone who's like gonna be super detailed and spend all this time i always wanted to be a paleontologist but like the amount of time it takes and detail oriented that's not me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so in high school i i took my science classes requirements to you know graduate i took them i finished them by my sophomore year so i wouldn't have to deal with them again sure and uh i'm getting more into it now and Mm -hmm. just like learning about all the cool things sure that can happen absolutely with it um i don't know i guess there's like that appreciation that everything in the world is made up of atoms and it's all about how they're assembled that make them what they are and mm-hmm. we've i've talked to a number of i love talking to people in like the stem fields because they for sure they're like building the yeah. world we're, we're, we're building things on a molecular level which still yeah. kind of blows my mind yeah, and the the fact that we can reliably say, "Oh, I connected this atom to that atom," is pretty humbling and also inspiring at the same time. Uh, back to your comment about how it's yeah. a language. It's actually a very common description of organic chemistry, because you have because okay. just like in any language, like a spoken language, there are rules. There's syntax. There's a, there's a grammar, and there's a very similar. Th- uh, analogs to the way molecules behave, right? There's a grammar to how they behave. Okay. They like this one type of atom will interact with this other type of atom, not with this other. You know, A will react with B, not necessarily with C. And there are rules that you can use to predict that. And there's a vocabulary in in organic chemistry. And of course, there's a lot of art too, because as you said, as you said, there's a lot of drawing, a lot of doodling. Um, and what I think what attracted to me the most about organic chemistry is the fact that in many ways it's very much like an art. At least when you draw it out on paper, okay. it looks, at least um, to me, it looks visually impressive because it's just diagrams and hexagons and zigzags. Um, and can I curse on this podcast? <laughs> You can say whatever you want. All right. I'm going to sound like such an asshole, but I feel as though deep in my soul, I'm more of an artist than I am a scientist. See, I think a lot of scientists feel that way about themselves. Yeah, though. you think so? I think it's all like, like art is so uh, ambiguous in a way. Art mm-hmm. is just like a craft in a yeah, sense. For sure. And like a beauty in the result of this craft where mm-hmm. we oftentimes look at uh, painting, mm-hmm. drawing, sculpting as like art. But I think it's only like culturally that we define it but that way. But like broadly, you know, architecture, there's art in how things are structured, mm-hmm. assembled, the materials that go into it. It's like this poetry, literature, poetry, music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's very, uh, yeah, I, I get that. Two things, uh, organic chemistry, what other types of chemistry is there? Mm-hmm. And two, what is the like utility and usefulness of organic chemistry, how it's used? Sure. So there's also inorganic chemistry, which is, so if organic chemistry is the chemistry of carbon-based compounds, inorganic is everything else so things like metals things like silicon boron iron okay. palladium but there's a lot of crosstalk between organic and inorganic chemistry in fact all the fields so there's another field that's uh, typical called uh, physical chemistry which is discussing how molecules behave in terms of their energy hmm. so how fast a reaction goes it's called kinetics and the stability of, let's say, you go, you start, you start with A, and A gets converted to B. There's an energy difference between those, and that's called thermodynamics. 
and there's also quantum mechanics, which is, you know, an amazing 20th century uh, innovation and the most accurate theory that exists out in science. Okay, it's just extremely. I want you to elaborate <laughs> on quantum theory, quantum mechanics. Sure. So, basically, the start of quantum physics is the is the observation known as the ultraviolet catastrophe. I forget which scientist observed this, but the prediction was, oh gosh, I, I really should have reviewed what the ultraviolet catastrophe was, but basically the, the idea was if you kept shining light onto something, it would absorb all this energy and eventually it would just keep absorbing energy into the ultraviolet and that would, of course, break the laws of physics. Whereas the, the so, so the prediction was it would it would just keep absorbing energy, whereas the the observed data show that it actually didn't. And another interesting thing that 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 kicked off the quantum revolution, so to speak, was and the this fact is like in the 1920s ish. Around the turn of the tw of the 1920th century, yeah. Okay, so yeah. more like yeah, around 1900, 1910. Got it. Uh, there's another, so 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 quantum actually means uh, a, a small unit. Yeah. And the reason why it's called that is if you think about energy levels in an atom, they actually have very set energy levels. So you go from, so so the the analogy that is often used is you have a ramp, which is called it, which is continuous, versus a, a set of steps, which is discrete. And when you walk up a set of steps, you don't you go from step one to step two to step three. You don't have a step one and a half or a step one and a quarter. It's always going to be one, two, three, very set energy levels. Okay. Which is what happens when you go really, really small. So when you have an, an atom and it has these electrons orbiting around the atom, the electron will occupy an energy level called one. And then when it, when it absorbs energy, it'll go from one to two. It does not go from one to one and a half or one and three quarters. And that okay. puzzled a lot of scientists because if you think about the macro world, so what we call classical physics, right? If you, if you roll a ball down a hill, right? That ball, you can measure or you can predict what energy it would have as it slowly uh, rolls down the hill. Not so when you go down to the atomic level. So that was one of the weird things that people observed about um, the quantum world, and and I don't know how how much you want to go. I want me to go further. Well, so uh, yeah. so I, back in February, I read this introduction to quantum theory book by <laughs> John John something. Okay. Wish I remember the name. It's like an orange book pretty small but like the gist of it what I got out of it was like they mentioned classic physics mm -hmm. and you know all these ideas are progressing throughout the century since the scientific revolution and mm -hmm. um, they're getting to this point where they're they're doing these experiments and they're like their, their minds are their being minds are blown. blown yes mm -hmm. like it, they're not So like what should be observed is not happening. It's like this like mm -hmm. <laughs> like it uh what what also another thing that quantum theory introduced into I think physics was the idea of uncertainty. And yeah. I think that before the twentieth century and even now, like a lot of scientists like and even people who think about science is that there's there's a certainty to things yeah there's a there's a correct answer there's a fact and there's things which which are wrong right but with with quantum theory what it introduced into science i think for the first time was this idea of uncertainty and i think the extension of that is chaos theory so for example if you let's go back to the idea of the ball rolling down the hill right okay. if you're looking at the ball rolling down the hill you can determine both its speed and its position, right? Because the our, our the, the the light packet, the the our photon coming from our eye is observing yeah. the um, the ball, 
uh, rolling down the hill, or rather the, the photon bouncing off of the ball is going into our eye. Yeah. And, and we can determine how fast it's going and where it is. When you go down to the tiny level, the, the atomic level, a photon and an electron have a, approximately the same size and energy. So when you have a photon that's hitting an electron, you can measure its position, but because they have similar sizes, you will affect this, its speed and vice versa. So the thing that, that quantum theory introduced is this something called the, the, pol, uh, not the poly, the, um, the uncertainty principle, where if you know how fast a, 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 a subatomic particle is going, you know less about its position and vice versa. So there, there is, we discovered a limit to what we can know about the universe, which, of course, back in the turn of the 19th, 20th century, people didn't like. They didn't like that we, there's actually limits to how much we can know. So I think back in the time of Newton, Newton was in favor of this very mechanical clockwork universe where if you, if you put all the planets in their, in their, in their positions on the moons, and the sun, and you said all, all of these celestial bodies have this position, and they have this much energy, this much speed. You can predict in 10 years, in 100 years, in 1,000 years where everything will be. But it turns out that, that, that there's a lot of uncertainty in science, and it's not quite so clockwork yeah. as we thought it was. And so probability actually um, plays a big role in, 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 in chemistry these days. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like mm -hmm. in quantum theory, it's like multiple things can happen mm -hmm. at the same time. Until you observe it. <laughs> so you probably heard of Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So the, the idea... Schrodinger's cat. So by, um, I think it's Erwin Schrodinger, he was, he was one of the big proponents of quantum theory. And, and they basically had to invent new math to, to describe what was happening uh, at the quantum level. But for those who aren't familiar with, with Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, let's say you have a, a cat in a box and there's some poison in the mm -hmm. box and this is a thought experiment so no 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 animals were actually harmed uh so but but basically the the poison the the, the the container for the poison could open or could not and if it opens the cat's dead and if, it's, if it stays closed inside the box and the cat is alive and you don't know whether the cat is alive or dead until you open the box so you say oh the cat is both alive and dead yeah. Until you open the box and you say, oh, the cat is actually dead. Or you open the box and you say, oh, the cat is still alive. Yeah. He actually came up with that thought experiment to throw into the light how absurd quantum theory is. Einstein did not like the implications yeah. of quantum yeah, he theory. Did Schrodinger did not either. Like it gave them chills up their spine and it's kind of giving me chills too maybe it's just the wind but it's just like like the, the, the fact that they're saying like how what does it mean for a cat to be both alive and dead until you open the box and your the act of observation what we call collapses the wave function collapses, collapses the two the collapses okay. the two possibilities into one possibility okay so that's what's happening actually at the quantum, at the, uh, at the atomic level. And I heard uh, like the term like God particle sometimes. That is theory, more like no? subatomic physics, like even below the, the level of the atom. So like the, the nucleus is actually okay. made of uh, proto uh, protons and neutrons, but then even those are, are made of things called quarks which are even more fundamental particles. Quarks spelled with a Q, right? Q, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's different, what they call flavors of quarks. Scientists are weird. There's like a top <laughs> quark, a bottom quark, a charm quark. I don't know. Uh, that's actually, to be quite honest, beyond my expertise, the, the subatomic particles, because that's more like well, particle let's, physics. Let's get back to chemistry. Sure. sure. All right. So we've got all these different kinds of chemistry. Mm -hmm. You're studying organic chemistry. Right. What, What is like the utility 
in applying organic chemistry? Definitely. Like what examples out in the world can we so imagine? A, a lot of examples, quote unquote, real world examples that I give my students in class, in addition to just the raw material that they give, that, that, that I'm giving to them, is examples in biochemistry and medicine. So a full year of organic chemistry is usually the prerequisite to take biochemistry because like I said the fundamental patterns and rules that molecules follow apply to us too apply to our bio biological systems so I, I give them a lot of examples of, of um, oh th this is something you'll see in biochemistry it's just a fancier version a more elaborate example of what I'm giving you like in like the sophomore level organic class uh, medicine so a, a, a lot of drugs uh, uh, they, they follow organic chemistry principles drugs hell yeah yeah <laughs> medicines and otherwise yeah um, everyone loves that the chapter on nitrogen containing compounds because that's where you talk about neurotransmitters and methamphetamine and like oh. all these really um, these drugs, licit or illicit, and everyone okay. just perks up. Everyone loves learning about drugs. <laughs> I found. <laughs> um, yeah, because so, so drug drugs are chemistry. They're, they're very. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's really interesting to, to to learn about, and at least to me, and I think most people. So the, you have the theory, and then you can have the observed part with it. Sure. Yeah, you can <laughs> say like like here's yeah like we're we're gonna we're gonna design a drug. So so back to what. You asked me about uh, what you can do with organic chemistry. A, a lot of people I graduated with uh, from from Boston College they work in pharmaceuticals. Okay. They work in biotech. So Boston is Boston Cambridge is a huge hub in the nation for pharmaceuticals and, and biotech. So Merck, Novartis are there. Okay. Um, another uh, field that people go into with a degree in organic chemistry is material science and polymer chemistry, okay. which is actually a really huge deal because if you think about paints and plastics, things like that, like th that's a lot of organic chemistry. And the, 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 the big secret, open secret, is that most, peop most people with an organic chemistry degree don't actually work in the big pharma places. They actually work in material science, like helping design new polymer formulations and coatings and things like that. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started learning about a couple things. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm very curious about biotechnology mm -hmm. and it seems like, uh, so I read this book Homo Deus like back in 2018 mm -hmm. and it's it. about like a brief hit, a brief history of the future of humankind it's by uh uh noah no yuval noah harari who wrote sapiens which is like a brief mm -hmm. history of uh humankind and that's what really that book right there got me like invigorated into like the future and science and technology yeah. i would definitely credit that and it was like i've always kind of been this like romantic kind of person the past and blah 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 and I was like, oh, it was it was like an ass kicking. I was like, sure. oh, shoot, like I got to I got to learn about this stuff. Yeah. yeah and um, what he kind of argues is that at the top of the human agenda now is kind of humans want to live healthier, longer and happier. So a lot of decisions and technology and mm -hmm. uh, investment is going towards that, which emerges kind of biology and technology together right sure definitely yeah so like like for example drug design is yeah. one field that a lot of my former colleagues have gone into and just trying to find like the next blockbuster drug for alzheimer's or you name it cancers right like um, so what is the yeah i think for me like i get a little confused with the term pharmaceutical big pharma mm -hmm drugs like it seems like there's this it becomes very like opaque like I don't know if like I see drugs pushed during commercials all the time right and at the same time too I know that there's so many drugs for 
treating cancers and diseases and things like that, where's kind of, seems very gray as far as like ethics, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think drug, the word drug gets a negative connotation. Yeah. Right. When you think of drugs, you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily think about Tylenol or ibuprofen. You think about meth or cocaine or marijuana and pharmaceuticals. You, you think of Tylenol and uh, Molnupiravir, which is the over-counter, over-the-counter COVID drug, which I talk about in my class. Um, but as you said, with the opaqueness to things, uh, with oxycodone, that's a pharmaceutical, but it's abused, right? So it's really like the a lot of the gray area is like these drugs are effective. They're effective. Mm-hmm. But then if one abuses them, then it becomes a problem. I'd say so. Yeah, like like marijuana, like uh, THC is, I mean, 20 years ago, people would call that a drug. But now people are starting to open their eyes to the, the fact that it can help with nausea, it can help with appetite, it can help with calming anxiety, which sounds like a pharmaceutical, even though it comes from a plant. Uh, psilocybin, which is in mushrooms, like there's a lot of research now that talks about how it can be actually therapeutic for a lot of people, even though it's like marijuana and mushrooms and other things which are quote unquote abused and criminalized actually have a lot of um, worth to give to a yeah. lot of people. I've I've definitely noticed that recently is like this uh, deeper conversation on the potential um, helpfulness of things like uh, psilocybin, mm-hmm. things for mushrooms and, and psychedelics, yes. I guess, mm-hmm. to treat certain things. One of the, I, I believe the Nobel Prize awarded, I believe it was 2018, I don't remember, but it was um, this woman called Yu uh, who was a Chinese uh, chemist, and she actually helped isolate a lot of the active organic compounds in traditional Chinese medicine. Okay. And that was sort of a meeting between what we call Western medicine and what's pejoratively called folk medicine or everything else. And I think a lot of people are starting to realize that, you know, there's a reason why these cultures have over time developed these medicines, these quote unquote folk medicines, because they work. Right for the most part, um, and I, I think people are starting to look to inspiration toward the natural world, like psychedelics and mushrooms and uh, marijuana and traditional Chinese medicine and other other traditional medicines around the world. Um, and we also see that kind of in you know popular culture with, oh, is this apple organic? Is this non-GMO? Yeah. And I think I credit that to a lot of growing distrust of science. So, for example, leaded gasoline and the chlorofluorocarbons, which have destroyed the ozone layer, and all these microplastics, which exist now everywhere. It's in rainwater. It's in our bodies. So I I think there is a push against uh, what humans have made in favor of things which are natural. And, of course, there's nuance to that, right? Uh, the poison hemlock plant is natural. I wouldn't drink it, right? That's the mm-hmm. plant that killed Socrates. Um, or Tylenol or, or, or aspirin. People take those every day, you know, with very minimum side effects. Uh, so there is nuance to that. But I, I, I think, yeah, it, it's very interesting because you, you mentioned about the, the book Homo Deus and how STEM fields are going to help humanity advance into the next centuries. And yet there's a lot of people going back to tradition yeah. and trying to th- thinking retroactively and, or retrospectively as well, which is a very interesting phenomenon. Do you have like um, a personal philosophy on uh, drugs or, or prescription drugs? I think I lean towards like I try not to mess with my body as much like I prefer to just be or like I think in my life my approach is like I want to delay having to like 
uh, have prescriptions or like relying on prescriptions as long as I can for a sense. Definitely. Um, I don't know. It's very multifaceted and I think it comes down to, and of course it's very simplistic, but trying to take care of yourself. Like you said, uh, try to delay how much reliance you have on uh, unnatural things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for instance, in grad school, I gained a bunch of weight as you do because you're just stressed and you're eating all the time and you're in the lab and you're just in lab six days a week for like 10, 11, 12 hours and you don't really have time to like cook good food or to even be active. At least I didn't. I, that was low on my priority list. Um, but then I started really taking care of myself, lost a bunch of weights. That in, like I said, in Boston, I discovered running. I love running. I ran yesterday. Yeah, you're a big walker too. We both we both walk to this location. We're both big walkers. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Yeah. And walking is actually like a really healthy and relaxing activity. It's an it's a good alternative to running, which I've I I I heartily um support. Uh, But yeah, I I started eating right, started getting more active, joined a gym, and I found that my asthma got under control. My really? allergies got under control, which was very surprising to me. Huh. Um, and I think part of it was just me being running outside, getting exposed to like all the plant matter that's floating around. And yeah, just 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 taking care of myself really helped me wean off of um, having to rely on like Zyrtec and my and my, and my uh, albuterol inhaler, which of course is, is simplistic if you have cancer. Right, no amount of um, walking is going to put your tumor in remission. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so of course, there's drugs out there that that do help with, yeah. you know, combating cancer. But um, yeah, like I, I really like what you said about just like relying less on like prescription drugs and just trying to take care of yourself and to to the extent that yeah. you can or your body right. can. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot of um, people take uh, baby aspirin every day for uh, for um, to help with blood clots and, and heart health, but how much of that could be? How much money could you save by just going on a walk every once in a while and losing five pounds, right? Rather than yeah. trying like like relying on drug to keep your heart health healthy. Yeah. Yeah, that will be a really interesting ongoing cultural society discussion Mm -hmm. certainly in america where we have such a reliance on cars and driving and Mm -hmm. um like the health of our hearts and and things like that Mm -hmm. uh switching gears a little bit i wanted the other thing i wanted to talk about was material science sure so i didn't know uh so i you know i have people on the podcast from like all over and all different fields and i met these material scientists in Istanbul. So mm-hmm. these three siblings, uh, the Mansours, shout out, Mabashir, Maya, and Miriam. And our conversation back in February just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Of like, I went in, uh, and you know, a lot of times I'm familiar with some of these topics right. uh, in sciences and fields. Material science and engineering, I knew very little about. Mm-hmm. And it was just like I woke up that morning with like a certain perspective on the world. Sure. And then after that conversation, it was like, Whoa! yeah, definitely. Everything in the world is materials. What we're sitting on right now. Yeah. Someone formulated this to be the correct density, the correct weight, the correct, you know, erosion resistance. Yeah. Like a lot of our world is designed and um, it's a really like I do occasionally step back and think about how much is just designed like hopping on the train and making sure that like the train doesn't fall off the rails or or things are going on on time or the fact that I have drinking water or I live in a building. I live on the eighth floor of a building that doesn't fall over. There's a lot of things that I think we take for granted and we just don't think about. And there's people like, like everything, someone did this. Yeah. Right. Or a team of people did this. It's so incredible. It's really incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, like back to material science. Speaking of concrete, um, the all of the uh, if you 
if you go to Rome, right, all of their yeah. uh, old classic architecture is still there and it's survived so long. And then you think about, you know, the concrete that we have here, it's like falling apart. So I, I, I think a lot of um, the, the recipe that people are trying to follow is like, oh, add this water and people are trying to add fresh water. But what the Romans didn't specify was you add seawater. Because when they say water, they just uh, go, yeah, water, water, as in yeah, water yeah. from the ocean. And that, and that actually, the, the salt actually helped make a durable product, like okay. all the columns that we have. So yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty to uh, what, the, what the ancients did that, huh. like, endure when the stuff that we make now doesn't endure. So what, what, uh, what kinds of things excite you about material science right now? That is definitely a field that... I don't know very much about, but I am actively trying to learn more about. Okay. Because, like, like, like you said, it undergrids our everyday life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back to like the science of organic chemistry. When you make one little tweak, like you substitute one atom for another, or one atom for a group of atoms, or one group for another group, like you, you can drastically change the properties of that molecule whether it's going to a material or it's a drug or it's a it's it's a biomolecule so when you think about polymers so basically uh, commonly called plastics right if you have polyethylene that's uh, like ziploc bags but then you, ch- you you substitute a hydrogen for a chlorine you make polyvinyl chloride pvc and that's a completely different material right mm-hmm. a pvc pipe is much different from a Ziploc bag. And all you do is you just change a hydrogen for a chlorine. Or you change that chlorine, you substitute that for something called a phenyl group. Okay. That's polystyrene and that's styrofoam, right? Like the takeout, takeout uh, boxes that you have. And yeah, like, like these tiny minute changes yeah. can affect so many different things. And of course, like it's not just mixing things together. You have to add plasticizers to make things like kind of move better you have um uh i forgot this other thing called but to to make it maybe more rigid so you 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 can you can add additives to sort of modulate the properties of of your of your material which is like super interesting (laughs) yeah uh vulcanizers that's what it is okay like yeah with with tires yeah great word kudos to the scientists that came up with vulcanized it's a great word. It was something to do with tires. Um, I think adding a little bit of sulfur made the rubber tires that we have on our cars possible. Because before adding sulfur, it was just it would wear down very quickly. It was very floppy, and then just adding a little bit of sulfur made it uh, the rigid black tires that we have yeah. on our trucks and cars. Nice. Yeah. A um, couple things just on my mind, real quick. I was out in uh, the Southwest not too long ago, within right. the last month. Yeah, you were went to Vegas, right? Vegas and like Page, Arizona, Arizona, Utah, all over nice. there. And conversations were a lot about water scarcity. <laughs> and so yeah. what is, what's kind of your perspective on water scarcity and uh, real briefly like potential solutions yeah. for kind of this this problem that certainly the southwest is facing definitely um what actually opened my mind to that is a book i read a few years ago called the life and death of the great lakes okay uh by dan something i can't remember the the it might be the the death and life of great lakes whatever okay but basically talks about how in the future the great lakes of north america are going to be a huge um, source of fresh water yeah, yeah. in the coming future, and how even uh, even in Wisconsin, I know you're from Wisconsin. There's a, I believe there is a town that sits just to the west of the natural watershed. Okay. So this town, their water would naturally flow toward west toward the Mississippi rather than east toward toward Lake Michigan, and they found a way to just sort of get over that and try to get water from 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 lake michigan which would cause a big controversy and there's a lot of um people are trying to divert a lot of the fresh water here to places like georgia 
mm. which is a huge project. <laughs> and of course, um, and yeah, so back to the Southwest um, and California, like it's, it's, it's a little scary. No, it yeah, seriously was scary when I was out there. So yeah. I'm looking at part of, I'm looking at snowbird locations. I'm scouting, <laughs> observing, and I've been in Miami twice. You're like my age. You're like 32, 33. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm going to make it happen okay. very quickly. <laughs> sure. And uh, so I'm already spending times in these locations, and I'm like, do I want more southeast? Do I want southwest? Mm-hmm. South, what I uh, concluded was I dig Miami, especially because of the culture, the energy, the uh, like the vibes. Mm-hmm. Southwest, it was so chill. Everything's so spread out, and you can see canyons miles away. You can see sure. weather storms miles and miles away. But the water scarcity thing really freaked me out. Yeah, and I think the water scarcity problem is going to be a problem even in a place like Miami where yeah there's water but you can't drink it and there's a lot of people are trying to set up infrastructure to purify the water and things are just getting more polluted so even though you, you could be surrounded by water but it might not necessarily be potable but this is this right? is what I don't understand how do we not have this technology yet or like how do we not have the like technology or resources effective the the level of effectiveness to turn salt water into fresh water how do how how have we not gotten there yet in society i know civilization i know there are certain groups that are trying to and certain companies that are trying to develop that technology and i believe to an extent they're they're, is it like politics and energy get in the way yeah like everything else politics like but this seems like a Good thing that we should probably look into. Look, there's a lot of good things that are good for humanity, <laughs> but when have politicians uh, had our best interests at heart? <laughs> well, now I'm like putting my foot down. I'm very protective of this water right yeah. here. We got a Great Lakes, folks. We got a Dur- during the uh, upcoming apocalypse. Um, the Great Lakes are a great place to be. I am yeah. not moving from here. <laughs> yeah, people. Water. People are afraid of the cold, so they go to the southwest, southeast. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile. You know, we're just we're just waiting, we're just waiting for everybody to come back, because yeah. we got the water. <laughs> yeah, and um, the global south is going to be affected the most with climate change, like the, like the southern um, hemisphere. Um, more toward like the equator area. Okay. So like, the the areas around the equator are just going to be basically unlivable. Like just temperatures are going to be so hot, and um, it's not just the temperature. Um, it's the it's the humidity. I believe I forget what the actual number is, but okay. above a certain percentage humidity, it uh, you you can't sweat anymore. Sweat is actually how our body cools ourselves because like when we have uh, we have our sweat come out of our pores, it's the evaporation of the water from our skin. That evaporation is taking away the heat from our bodies, and there comes a point where if it's too humid out the evaporation of, of the water from our skin just won't happen. So we can't actually sweat away the heat energy from our bodies. So people will mm. actually um, overheat without wow. without AC. And yeah. um, so and then, yeah. so you, there'll be this uh, like astronomical reliance on AC, which mm-hmm. requires energy right. to run. Right, um, hmm. and a lot of climate refugees. One could argue. Um, there's another book that I recently read. You, by the way, you, I know you like to read. I like to read. You, you want to come by, look at my library. Uh, this book called I would love that. This book called Rising by Elizabeth Rush. Okay. She actually talks to a lot of people in the U.S. Um, people in Maine, uh, Rhode Island, uh, Staten Island. Um, Louisiana and uh, San Francisco just about rising uh, sea levels and she argues that like one of the first climate quote-unquote refugees are people in Staten Island who got hit by Hurricane Sandy like Mm. they had their beach houses and they decided that they're going to take the government funding to move away from the ocean and just let it go back to being um, wetlands 
I do see yeah. that. Um, I haven't talked about it really publicly, but this is mm-hmm. something I, I kind of believe a lot. And that's the 21st century is going to be about human movement. Yeah. And like the populations, I, I closely watch like the populations of countries and areas and continents and look at like that data and like trends. And it'll be really interesting the moves that countries make to like take in people, absorb yep. people, and then mm-hmm. put people um, in positions where they can still live uh, and be happy so and productive, lives. live lives. Yeah. 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 And um, yeah, so like human human population movements um i think the 21st century is going to be really uh it's gonna be a big issue one of the most hard-hitting points that this author made is that people are so slow if not inert to act on climate change is because it just takes so much time for you to see you know a rise in temperature you know one degree uh, Celsius per you know like for however long it takes so be- because it's not an immediate threat people just you know yeah. look the other way because people also too on a daily basis have struggles and yep. needs and I'm like I gotta go to very work tough. I gotta yeah. you know pay my taxes I gotta pay my rent you know like no yeah. one's if it's if it's something that's gonna happen in 20 years like no one's gonna people are not acting on it which yeah is a fault of our species <laughs> uh there's so many directions to go. Uh, sure. Real quick, microplastics. You had mentioned mm-hmm. it. Um, I listened to this interview with someone, I think, who helped design, I don't know, someone in Silicon Valley, but uh, was working on microplastics and technologies to remove microplastics from the atmosphere. Hmm. What's, uh, Interesting. Yeah, what's your take on, not take, what's your perspective on microplastics and like help me better understand it so with plastics in general uh the reason why they were so lauded when i I believe in like the middle of the 20th century is because it was was how durable they were right uh you no longer had to rely on glass which could break or uh wood which could rot you would you could put things in a plastic container and it would be durable and it's, it was its durability, which also led to people um, having a pushback against it, because they said this red solo cup is not going to decompose anytime soon. Yeah. Right. That wrapper that you threw out of your car is going to be there for the next hundred years, um, and of course, it it does break down, but not into anything that is actually renewable, right? So like if, if you take polystyrene, it's going to break down into smaller units of still polystyrene. That's the microplastics that that um that uh you talked about. So it's just like the really tiny fragments of the styrofoam cup that they're now floating around and maybe in our blood. Um yeah. trying to cleanse that from the environment that might I mean, I know there's a lot of skepticism about science because it brought us into this conundrum, but a lot of yeah. people are trying to um, you know, find solutions to right what has been wronged. And I believe people are trying to make these me- meshes. Uh, some of my colleagues at Northwestern have wa- uh, talked about these called MOFs, Metal Organic Frameworks, uh, which could help block or, or, or trap these tiny compounds. Um and I think there is technology, um, not nothing with microplastics, but more with uh, pollutants. I believe in certain cities, there's a cert- there's a special paint that you can just put on like the side of a building or like on a column in a freeway, and it will just suck up the uh, carbon dioxide or the or the nitri- nitrogen oxides that are just floating around. And it's just like, wow. yeah, all you need to do is just like put in a fresh coat of paint, and it'll just <laughs> absorb the pollutants, and then every few months, so. I'm optimistic seeing what, we, yeah. what we've been able to do with, you know, those pollutants absorbing paints and also with um, uh, solar panels 
there's been a huge like incremental increase to solar panel technology. It used to be not very efficient. We're getting there. Okay. So I'm pretty hopeful about cleansing microplastics from the air and the environment. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're kind of wrapping up here. Before sure. we go, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about Boston and Chicago. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so again, how would you describe your experience in Boston? And how's it feel coming back? And what do you love about Chicago? Like, like I said, Boston, like I learned a lot about myself in Boston. Um, and I would, I grew up a lot there, you know, not just getting a, de a degree, but you know, personally, and I just became a lot more sure of myself. Um, and yeah, but Boston, Boston's really nice. I'm not going to dish, uh, I'm not going to, um, dunk on Boston. Uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, very small, uh, at least for me hard to make friends there but i think that's true for anyone like when you're in when you're an adult like all yeah. my, my networks here um and and i'm a pretty introverted dude i think i can right would you say so i'm pretty introverted it's just hard for me yeah to, like, i think make, generally and then yeah then you're then like you get me to talking and then i can't yeah. shut up but, yeah <laughs> but um which is amazing that i'm a teacher but, <laughs> um yeah, it, it was just really hard to make friends. I didn't really have a, a, a connection to Boston. Whereas okay. here in Chicago, like this is where I did a lot of my own self-discovery in college and, you know, my master's degree here and making making friends who are my age, who we could all kind of be lost together in our 20s and yeah. kind of grow together. And like it, it's more of a depth of connection that I have with the people of Chicago that brought me home. Um, Boston's great. Like I, I, I recommend you go visit there. Um, also, a big thing that want that I, that uh, precipitated the move. That's a chemistry joke. Huh? Precipitate. Precipitate. Uh, but uh, but but precipitated my move back to Chicago is, it's really expensive there. In like Boston, the, the rent. Like I can't. I I couldn't afford it. There there, really? there came a time when I was just like I can't throw away half my paycheck to rent. Wow. Yeah. And it's that Boston, San Francisco, New York. I talked about this with my friends. Like, I love New York. I could live in New York. I can't afford to live in New York. You could live in New York, but you couldn't live in New York. No, <laughs> you'd live there. And but but what's your quality of life, right? If you're hustling and you you're living in a like a one bedroom that's like the size of you know what could be like a studio here in Chicago. So. Um, yeah, like Chicago's great. Everyone sleeps on Chicago because it's not a coast. Yeah. Right? Everyone's like, oh, it's not LA. It's not New York. It's not Boston. What's yeah. there? And then people come visit and they're like, this is a fun, great city. So. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's like the most bane for your buck. Yes. For uh, big cities in the United States and probably the world. It's huge. It, there's a, we have a great public transit system. There's many different neighborhoods with a different. Um, personalities, mm -hmm. um, great, yeah, great food, great um, lakeside. Like we have great yeah. park system, not just along the lake, but in the city. Um, you know, winters are brutal, but I, I, I came from Boston, so it's the same. So if you can withstand the the winters, the summers are beautiful here. Yeah, yeah, it's walkable. Well, everything's walkable for yeah. us. <laughs> Yeah, I once walked from Edgewater to Wicker Park and back, which is a total of seventeen wow. miles, and I was like, "Well, like it's hard." <laughs> wow. Yeah. And don't forget, we live on a great lake. We do live <laughs> on a great lake, and I think what people don't appreciate about the Great Lakes, they're they're seas. Yeah. They're inland freshwater seas. They're gigantic. I cannot see lands. The way I'm looking right now, it is endless, boundless. I had people who who, who uh, would tell me about their first visit to Chicago. They said, yeah, Lake Michigan. I thought it would be like a cute little lake. It's like, no, no, it's 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 a sea. It's an inland sea. Yeah. Like it's gigantic. So um, shout out to the glaciers. Th thank you, glaciers, for carving this, the, the, <laughs> these great lakes out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, uh, Mark, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and having Thanks a conversation having me. with me. Yeah, it's, it's been great. great. We had to catch up. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Mark on Instagram at Thirst Traps and Churches. Uh, think about how science 
is applied every day around us and how it helps shape the world that we live in.